Hello, um, I'm Kate Bassett. I'm the theatre critic for The Independent on Sunday, and I've just written a biography of Jonathan. Um, Jonathan himself hardly needs an introduction. He's been world-famous uh, director for gen um, decades and is a household name for uh, as long as that. Um, I think, just to give a very quick overview, I think you've got details in your programme, but um, not only has been a theatre director, he's been a great popularizer of science doing The Body in Question, which was a... 13-part series uh, on BBC in the 1970s, various excellent documentaries, Ivan, which was about uh, Parkinson's disease, um, trained as a doctor. So spanning the arts and sciences, moving into opera, working at the National Theatre, working at the ENO with the Mikado, uh, and Rigoletto was perhaps the, its longest, definitely its longest running hits. Um, and working internationally at the Met in New York, um, in Tokyo, everywhere you can think of, La Scala in Milan. So um, perhaps we could start, this CV is ongoing. Um, <laughs> it's a nightmare for a biographer trying to keep up. Um, perhaps we could talk, you've just dashed from rehearsals for Rutherford and Son, yeah. which is, um, perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Well, this was a play which Barry Rutter, who's somewhere around here, um, asked me. He runs that wonderful group up uh, in Halifax called Northern Broadside. And uh, he asked me to do this play by Geetha Sowerby called Rutherford and Son, about a, about a, a family up in the north who uh, run a glass factory. And uh, the family is in, in a great deal of difficulty. And they're working in a time of recession with people being unemployed. And it seems rather appropriate at this moment to be doing a play of this sort. And it's absolutely a, a brilliant piece of unpretentious naturalism. And there is no temptation to introduce conceptualism. And I cannot bear. Um, concepts are usually introduced into the theatre by people who've never been within laughing distance of a concept. <laughs> In fact, I had a very interesting experience about this. When I was first doing a, an opera about oh, 30 years ago in Frankfurt, and this man uh, who was called a dramaturg came glimmering at me through his thick glasses and said, what is your concept for this flying Dutchman, this fliegende Hollander? And I said, well, I, I don't have what you would call a concept. I've got some ideas how to do it, but no concept. <laughs> And then he glimmered at me and said, without concept, you will have great problematics with your praxis. <laughs> and I said, well, I've had most of those my, most of my life. Um, so I, I just don't do that sort of thing. I think there was also a, an example of what a great concept would be, which was, I think it was... Oh, well, I mean, he, 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 he referred to, to several uh, German productions which were... Uh, which were conceptual, but I, I wasn't able to recognize in anything of the instances that he gave of anything which I would call a concept. They were just sort of idiotic ideas, you know. I think, I think there was one which was um, possibly Lear, I think, which was doing, doing it with all the clothes inside out because that was the seamy side out. Yes, that's right. He said, oh, that's right. He said, no, it was a, it was a marriage of Figaro, was it marriage which I noticed they were, they were doing it with all their clothes inside out. And I said, why are they wearing their clothes inside out? I mean, it's rather laborious to get into it. He said, no, it's because it's the seamy side of life. <laughs> and I said, it's only in the theatre I come across seamy sides of life. You know? <laughs> Just to, to backtrack, could you just explain, as you trained as a doctor, your, your father was a doctor uh, and a psychiatrist, 
um, how you actually got into the theatre. Oh, it all happened by accident. I mean, practically everything that happened other than the thing for which I made a deliberate choice, which was to become a, a, a neurologist. That was what interested me, and that's why I went into it. In fact, I trained with my old friend Oliver Sacks. We were both interested in the nervous system and how it worked. And then I had a gap of about uh, three weeks, and I was asked by accident to, uh, to come and participate in a show which became Beyond the Fringe, and we did this show, which became um, unexpectedly successful, and then we got asked to do the same show in, in uh, New York, and then I, I got, I, practically everything that's happened to me subsequently have been a series of unsolicited invitations. I've never gone looking for it because I thought I would go back to do what I th thought I was intended to do or meant to do. And that was uh, working in neurology. And then one thing led to another and uh, I got into this business. And, uh, and the same happened with opera. I was asked by Roger Norrington oh, about 20 years later would I like to come and direct uh, um, Cosi Fantute? And I said, well, I've never been to an opera in my life, so I don't know how to do it, and I can't read music. He said, it's all right, I can. And, uh, <laughs> and, then I, and so I went on and started directing operas, so that all of these things were the result of unsolicited invitations to do things, which I never went on looking for, because I never meant to do it in the first place. I think, I think one of your first professional um, directing jobs was at the Royal Court, was um, John Osborne's underplaying cover? Yes, that's right. I mean, I was asked by George Devine. I mean, it was towards the end of the performance of, of uh, Beyond the Fringe in London, just before we went to the United States, and he said, would you like to direct a production of a, of a play by John Osborne, a double bill, and I was to do one half, and John Dexter was to do the other half. And I said, well, I've never directed a play in my life. I don't know what to do. And uh, he said, well, you, you'll probably pick it up as you go along. And, uh, and I found to my, uh, to my delight and also rather bewildered by the fact that I did pick it up as I went along because it seemed to me perfectly obvious what one ought to do. Um, it was all to do with getting human behavior accurate and right and rather reticent and getting the, the, the negligible details into a considerable uh, uh, representation. There was also a moment with John Dexter, I think, wasn't there, when he asked you about blocking? Oh, yes, he said, I, I said to him, uh, we, had a, we met at lunch about three weeks into the rehearsal. He was doing one half and I was doing the other. And uh, I, I, he said to me, how's it going? And I said, well, I, I've got no idea because I, I've, never, I've never directed in my life before. And he, I said, how about you? And he said, well, I've only just finished the blocking. How about you? And, and I didn't dare ask him what blocking was. <laughs> Um, I thought blocking was something which actually obstructed a production, um, as the name implies. And then I began to have a fear that when, it was, uh, when the critics would talk about it, they'd say this um, tolerable production marred by its conspicuous absence of blocking. Uh, and I've never blocked a play since. I mean, I you know, asked people to go there and then come here. And, but, I mean, it all happens rather spontaneously when I do it. I, I don't have sort of grand ideas before I start. Mm. Um, you, often, you sometimes say that you regret going into theatre. Can you just contextualise that a bit? Can you say why Well, I mean, I, was, I, I meant to become. I mean, I was trained as a biologist. I was absolutely fascinated, as my friend Sachs was, with certain aspects of biology which interested me a very great deal for a long time before I became interested specifically in the nervous system. 
um, I was fascinated by embryology, and I subsequently, many years later, did, did several programs for the BBC called Self-Made Things, which was about this rather peculiar thing that uh, how, do, how is it that creatures, plants on the one hand and animals on the other, including human beings, manage to reproduce themselves without something intending to know what it's going to be? Why is it the squirrels invariably give birth to squirrels without there being something to tell them what to do. I mean, there isn't as if there's a voice halfway through saying, no, 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 four legs, not three. <laughs> um, and what is it that determines the outcome? And I became very interested in the, the, in the development in the late 19th century of the discovery, first of all, of cells, and then the discovery that cells contain nuclei, and then the discovery that nuclei contained chromosomes and the chromosomes contained what were virtually the instructions which gave rise to the, uh, the creature of which these things, these genes as they called them by 1910, were the expression. And I became very fascinated by that. But then I was also interested, partly under the influence of my father, who was indeed a psychiatrist, but who had himself trained as a neurologist, um, I was fascinated by, partly because of what my father introduced me to, but also as a result of going to Cambridge and being introduced to uh, modern Anglo-American philosophy, which had changed, philosophy had changed a very great deal by the time you get into the post-war period, and um, it had become a much more uh, analytic procedure in which people ask questions about the nature of intention, what is the nature of perception, what, is we, what do we mean by someone looking at something, how does looking differ from merely having your eyes open, how does listening um, differ from merely having your e ears open, what, what do we bring to it by virtue of having a nervous system which constitutes the act of perception and what, we, what do we mean by an action. And that, in fact, is what the whole of theatre consists of. You are dealing with the nature of action in this rather peculiar way. You have something which is very peculiar to human beings. Human beings, as most of you here are about to do, I suppose, you're going to a theatre in which you are going to watch people pretending to be other people. And that's what theatre consists of. And this very peculiar uh, experience, you have a duplex experience in which you're watching people who you know to be actors of a certain name, who are also pretending to be people with another name. And yet you actually are constantly oscillating backwards and forwards between the perception of someone who is an admirable performer and also uh, the performance of someone who actually doesn't exist, who's a fictional character. And this duplex experience is one of the things which intrigued me about it. I was also going to ask you, um, having been a medic uh, and knowing, having been erudite in philosophy, do you... I wasn't erudite, well, I was simply acquainted with yes, philosophy. Yes, acquainted with yeah. philosophy. Um, how would you or do you still apply that in your directing? Well, do I, do, I don't do it self-consciously. I mean, there are certain things about um, medical ideas, about the nature of something. What is it that makes something into an action? And and also, I had my attention drawn to not just simply to what I noticed when I was being trained to observe patients and arrive at a diagnosis on the basis of the observation of what it is they could and couldn't do. Um, I mean, you know, you look at patients very carefully. 
much less carefully now than people did originally, because when I was being taught, there were no elaborate machines for doing um, complicated uh, ECGs and complicated uh, fMRIs of brains. You had to watch what people could and couldn't do. And you, actually, you, had in, you had interviews with patients. You talked to them about what the difficulty was and so on and so forth. So I got very interested in that. And then, but um, some of the philosophical things I be became acquainted with was the, um, what it was for something to be an action. I mean, we, we talk about someone doing something which he, he or she consciously undertakes with view to a satisfaction or an outcome which they intend, but that is often attended by things which don't have any specific function. They're not, as it were, uh, uh, things like, uh, say, blushing and sweating, which you can't decide to do. You can't blush as it were, in order to indicate to someone how embarrassed you are by saying something. You, you can't say, oh God, I, I wish I had blushed a little bit more <laughs> in order to show how embarrassed I am. You find yourself blushing, and that's a ref something which happens to you. Um, but there are lots of things which, in fact, are actions that one has which are not intended in the sense that, for example, you can, while you're talking, as I'm doing now, you're playing with your finger, and, or else, while you're talking and meditating on what you're about to say, you'll be twisting your hair or playing with your earlobe or running your hand along the table. These things are actually part and parcel of actions because they are actions in the sense that you can ask someone not to do them. You can say, I do wish you wouldn't drum on the table while you're talking to me. Oh, I'm sorry, I won't do that. And then the next moment, they're doing that, you see. And, and these are subintentional actions. Now, I was introduced to that by reading um, a wonderful Australian philosopher who died last year, uh, Brian O'Shaughnessy, who wrote in his great book on the will a whole section devoted to subintentional actions. And at least, I think, you know, 25% of what I do in the theatre is reminding people of subintentional actions and getting them to put these bits of behavioural rubbish back into the production so that people are seeing these sort of strange things that are people doing while they're talking. By yes, and I will. And, and it's that. I, in fact, I spend half my time sweeping the behavioural rubbish back into a performance which they otherwise would have been left out. Is that Irving Goffman as well? Well, Goffman, Goffman was influenced by that. But I think he... Irving Goffman is a man who I read with great enthusiasm. He, he wrote a great series of works on behaviour in public places and particularly what he called apologetic behaviour or redescriptive behaviour, the purpose of which was to redescribe, often non-verbally, to onlookers who might, in fact, in the street or elsewhere, um, interpret uh, uh, an accidental f failure of performance on one's own part. Um, and uh, it's because we are constantly um, aware of the fact that we are the, the exponents of falsy performance, which might in fact be the subject of criticism. He drew his attention, our attention, to you know, why is it that when someone accidentally trips in the street, why do they ostentatiously go back and inspect the pavement? <laughs> and they do so in order to show that, the, it was the, that they weren't drunk, but the pavement was at fault. Well, we're doing that all the time. There are all sorts of things. When the, the embarrassment that people have when they leave a 
um, a dinner and they perhaps leaving a little bit too early. They will often, they will go backwards out of the room um, in order to show how anxious they are to convey to their host that they're not hurrying away because they can't bear to be there. And then the last thing they'll do is they leech, re reach the door, they'll go, show I will remain in contact. Well, Goffman is a master of observation of this sort, and I think they're very important parts of it. And Goffman really did uh, have a great influence on me in that way. But Goffman himself was influenced by another philosopher, uh, John Austin, who was an Oxford philosopher, who wrote a, this whole series of essays, uh, one on pretending, which is what it is to pretend to do something, and is there a limit to the action such that at a certain point it ceases to be a pretense and becomes something which is a, a faulty uh, action of some sort. He, he says at some point, he said, I can illustrate what is a pretense. He said, for example, you're at a party at which for a forfeit you are to pretend to be a hyena. And uh, so you go down on all fours accordingly, make a few essays at hideous laughter, and then unexpectedly take a large and unexpectedly large bite out of my calf. Not much pretense about that. There are limits of sport. Well, the idea of, of in what way pretense is defined by the limits beyond which it becomes a culpable action rather than simply a pretense. Well, this is the sort of thing that philosophers addressed themselves to because they were fascinated. Donald Davidson in his book on action was fascinated by the business of what it is for something to be an action and how it differs from something, from how do actions differ from events. And, and indeed so very and so relevant to theatre of course. Of the course it's what theatre is entirely about. It's filled with people who in fact are committing themselves to something for which they could be either blamed or praised, which are actions of theirs, but at the same time, while they're doing actions of theirs, I mean, I've just done it myself, stop it. Um, if you watch people, and the other subject which absolutely fascinates me, and there's a huge literature on this, is uh, the hand movements that accompany speech. Um, you only have to turn the sound down and watch people being interviewed on television and you'll see that they're all the time doing this and that and that. But there's a vast literature on the hand movements that accompany speech and it's very important to get some of those right when you're doing it on the stage. And particularly when you're doing an opera because you have to stop people from doing actions which never occur in real life at all. And all that sort of <laughs> ghastly stuff that happens in opera which, which make it such a ludicrous profession. Um, and um, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, many years ago, I was working with an, uh, a singer in, uh, in New York. We were doing the, this famous aria, uh, Dovisono, in, uh, in, uh, in The Marriage of Figaro, in which uh, she's the, the countess is deploring to herself, meditating to herself on this marriage of hers, which is falling to bits. And she asked me, she said, where should I stand? And I said, well, you, I mean, you can't possibly stand. You're in a state of depression. I don't want to compromise your singing, but you sit down. And she said, well, what do I do with my hands? I said, that's a very odd question. You don't wake up in the morning at 7 o'clock and ring up a hand center and say, what shall I do with my hands all day unless I've got something to do with them? And I said, well, you often do things. I said, just stare vacantly into space while you think about this marriage of yours. And while you're doing it, just idly with your fingers, just play with the arm of the chair and looking casually, pluck away at the thing and just look. And she said, it's the first time I've been able to do that aria. 
because it was natural. And half of what directing is, and what it consists of, is just simply reminding your performers of what they knew anyway and getting them to forget what they ought never to have known in the first place. I should also just add that Jonathan was actually um, revolutionary in getting someone to sit down in opera. That was a radically new thing. Well, it wasn't that much. I mean, people do sit down, but I mean, they, they, well, well, they used to stand up and they used to come it. down and be within the, the, you know, the view of the, of the conductor. Um, and uh, they would do things which bear no relationship to what they're trying to express. The other philosopher who it affected me in that way was another person who was influenced by John Austin and by Goffman, and that's John Searle, an American philosopher who was in San Francisco. I became very uh, closely acquainted with him when I was working as a visiting professor at uh, Berkeley. And uh, he wrote a wonderful book called Speech Acts, in which he drew attention to the fact that we, when we utter, when we say, when we speak, we are doing things with the speech. Not only does it have a meaning, but it also has a pragmatic intention. You take an example of a, a sentence which I've quoted in a book I've written about this, and he, he says, um, well, this is an example which I had of my own, which he said, you take a sentence like, for example, this this room needs painting. Well, we know it, it cannot refer to mountains, it can't refer to uh, anything other than paint, but if it's uttered by um, an estate agent conducting someone around a rather unpromising premises and he opens the door and says, well, this room needs painting, um, it's a, what uh, 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 Searle says, it's an indirect recommendation of the, uh, the room. In other words, if painted, I think you'll like it. Whereas if exactly the same sentence is uttered by um, a colonel taking his sergeant around the barracks and opens the door and says, this room needs painting, he would be ill-advised not to recognize that it was an order. In other words, they are two different types of speech acts. Speech acts are doing things. And, and that's what the whole of theater consists of. You have to identify what the speech act is and what people are doing when they're uttering the speech act, what they're doing with things which are, in fact, the gestures which accompany the talk, the things which, in fact, they're doing when they're just listening to people, which are these gestures which are undoubtedly actions of theirs in that they know that they, they can have their attention drawn to them and stop it if you ask them. And unless you put that sort of behavioral rubbish back into the production, it's like leaving 15 staves off the musical score of an opera. Um, in a way, you've already talked about how, how you get actors to do those little gestures and things, but perhaps being at the National, we could, you could just um, describe what it was like working with Laurence Olivier for the National Theatre Company on... He, did, he was Shylock in A Merchant of Venice. Yes, I, I did that Progress first. with working yes, with him? I worked with him. That was one of the first things I ever did. About, it's nearly 35 years since I did the production. And I was very you know, disconcerted to be asked to direct Olivier, a, a great actor. And here was I was a novice. And I thought, well, yeah, he's never going to listen to me at all. And... Uh, I, first of all, I had to get him to take off all the makeup that he thought was uh, necessary in order to be Jewish. And I had to tell him, well, let's see, I'm Jewish and I don't look like that at all. I haven't got anything to do that. And I said, well, um, uh, I, I, I don't think you need to wear all that stuff. I want you to be, I set it in, I set it in Venice in 1890. And I said, I want you to be a Venetian businessman who happens to be the subject of Venetian anti-Semitism. 
um, but uh, I think you should look indistinguishable from the people who in fact are looking down on you because they know you to be Jewish. That's all. And he said, oh, it's fine, very good. And, and I gave him one or two ideas. Um, for example, the moment when he hears that Antonio's, one of Antonio's ships has gone down, he said, well, how, do I, how, how do I express triumph and excitement? And I said, well, I'll show you. I said, there's a wonderful, there's a marvelous newsreel picture of Hitler in the railway carriage at Compiègne with at the surrender of France. And briefly, we see Hitler doing a little triumphant jig I said, just do that. Rather ironic to have someone Jewish pretending to be Hitler, but anyway, um, do that. And he said, oh, good idea. And one by one, I got him to take off more and more of the makeup in return for the bits of business I actually recommended to him. Did you let him keep his teeth? I let, well, I let him, he got himself a pair of what he believed to be Jewish teeth. Um, and uh, I, I was not a dental expert about Judaic tooth wear, um, but I said, but he obviously spent a lot of money getting these teeth, and I said, well, you can keep the teeth. I mean, I, no one will know they're Jewish. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I, I believe they were based on a member of the National Theatre Board. I believe sure so, yes, there were some, yes, and I think he noticed them, and he got them rather expensively made, and I simply didn't have the courage to say, oh, Larry, you must get rid of those awful teeth. Um, I don't think anyone's going to think of them as Jewish or otherwise. In any case, I just want you to be a businessman, that's all. Apparently, I think he, I think he gave press interviews in the teeth to see if anyone noticed. Yes, he did. <laughs> I, I, I don't think anyone said to him, Larry, um, I noticed that you've, um, uh, something odd has happened to your teeth. Have you, bec have you become Jewish? <laughs> um, so, so the Merchant of Venice was an ex early example of you well, in opera, they call it the time shift opera. Yes. Moving something into another into period. Another period. Yes. Do you want to just talk about that? And the, the, the well, the I mean, I was, I was very struck by the fact that in that particular case, it didn't seem to me that Shakespeare had, was acquainted with that Venice, Venetian world. And I said, well, what can I do with it to actually make it more credible? Um, perhaps I can update it a little bit, put it into some period about which I, I know something um, more than Shakespeare knew about the period in which he set it, or the place in which he set it. And so I, you know, rather modestly took it into the 1890s. Um, and subsequently, I did update several productions. And I suppose I updated more productions in opera than I ever did in plays for one very simple reason. People who objected to the occasional updating that I did, for example, that Rigoletto, which I did now in its 30th year of revival, um, I, um, uh, I think that people forget, people who object to the updating, forget that 90% of all operas written in the 19th century were conspicuously backdated into periods about which the composer knew absolutely nothing at all. And it was a, the, the, the opera productions tended to be set in what I call an exotic elsewhen, in order to, as it were, delight patients well, patience. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 the audience, um, who, uh, who were what are they? Nothing more than sedentary tourists. The most depressing sound in the world I, I found when when I went to New York and began working at the Metropolitan Opera was the most depressing sound in the world is the roar of appreciative applause when the curtain goes up. 
and you have people saying as the curtain goes up on a sort of magnificent or so-called so magnificently historic production and people saying, oh my God, we were there last year. It looked exactly like that. And they are sedentary tourists who go to the theatre, go to opera in order to have an exotic elsewhere of an experience. And I just don't do that. I'm only interested in the commonplace. That is what I mean, that's what I did when I was a doctor. I confronted ordinary people who had um, deficits which made their lives awkward, difficult, and in some cases impossible. And it's these negligible details which actually I am fascinated by. And it's what my mother said. My mother was a, a very impressive novelist. I didn't know she was a novelist for many years. She used to sit typing opposite, and I just thought she was a typist. Um, but I mean, she said to me at one point, she said, it's the function of literature and art um, and even performance to make the negligible considerable. And I'm only interested in drawing people's attention to what they have seen anyway and uh, to make it considerable. I simply do what Wittgenstein talks about. I give, and another philosopher who influenced me, I would suggest something. I said, have you ever noticed that when someone is doing that, they're moving their hands or when they're doing these things, and they say, oh yes, yes, yes of course, it's all right. And as Wittgenstein says, I know how to go on. So that once you've introduced them to that idea, rather than, as it were, they have gone into the depths of the person they're trying to be, they find themselves having built the person they are trying to be by putting together all these pieces of naturalistic um, negligibilia, which actually sum into being someone who they might be, but aren't. That's what they are. They're pretending to be someone. There's a wonderful philosopher, Bernard Williams, I think, says somewhere, he said, I'm seated in, I'm seated in the third row of the old Vic. Um, I am, I am, 28 feet from Sir Lawrence Olivier. How many feet am I from Othello? <laughs> That's a very interesting question, you see. Here is there the same person is in fact, is he's being visited by the audience because in fact he's a famous actor, but is also being appreciated by the audience of being someone who is not Sir Lawrence Olivier. And they I say, this duplex uh, experience is part of what the theatre consists of. But I think, and I believe this very passionately, that it, partly because I, it's what it, it attracted me and interested me in, in medicine. It drew your attention to the details of what everyone knows anyway but had forgotten. And it's the, I mean, that's what's so wonderful about Madame Bovary. Here is a person of spectacular negligibility, someone who's of no interest at all, who you'd probably go mad with boredom after five minutes of being with her. And yet it's one of the greatest novels of the 19th century. And that's, what in, that's what's so wonderful about this Rutherford and Son by Geetha Sowerby. It's about a series of, as in Chekhov, to people who will be forgotten no more than about 10 years after they've died. And that's what happens to most of us, that we are all negligible, and it's the function of the theatre to show that these negligible, negligible creatures that we are are worth, in fact, attending to, because the details of them draw attention to the nature of forgettable life. That's what literature and the theatre are about. That's their function. People who say to me, as they often do, I go to the theatre to be taken out of myself. And it's usually said by people who have nothing to take out. 
I go to the theatre, and I th hope people do, to be taken into yourself and to remind you of what it's like to be alive in the knowledge that there will come a moment not too far off when you're not going to live anymore. And that's what it's about. That's the subject of the, of, of the, of the enterprise. You're also an artist in your own right, and you do photography and sculpture. I just well, wondered if that linked with the, the negligible... No, it's not. Well, it is in a sense. I mean, I, I think I was interested. I never, I mean, my father was a very accomplished painter in addition to being a very good, uh, I mean, my father was one of the founders if in England of child psychiatry and he was very interested in these sort of details. Um, and uh, I think, what was this? Well, what, I, I, what, I was, what I was aiming at was, is uh, you sometimes talk about being interested in the negligible yes. concerning your art as well. What, oh, what yes, well, I mean, I, I, mean I, I wasn't interested myself in painting or doing any art. My father was a very accomplished draftsman and sculptor. He could do it very well. He did some wonderful sculpture. He got a wonderful sculpture I've got upstairs in my study of one of his shell-shocked patients in 1920. A bust, it's wonderful. Brian just staring rather sightlessly off into the middle distance. Um, but I wasn't particularly interested until someone, when I was in New York, gave me a camera as a present. And I began taking pictures of my you know, newborn eldest child, eldest boy, and then my next son. And then I began doing rather touristic photographs of New York. And then gradually I became, without noticing that I was doing it, I, my interest in things became much more limited in that I didn't want memorable scenery. I found myself absolutely um, preoccupied by abstract arrangements, which by focusing on, you couldn't tell where it was, but what you had your attention drawn to aspects of what was in front of your eyes, which you hadn't previously seen, which was the abstract arrangement of things. And I did, I must have done about five or six hundred of these photographs, which I collected without thinking of them as being my artwork. I just had album after album of them. And then I began saying, would it be quite nice to, to start painting things and putting things together, um, which I make on the basis of these abstract photographs. But I was deeply influenced by, you know, the European modernism, by people like um, Schwitters and people like that. And I began going out at night when I was working in Florence, for example, with a Stanley knife, and unseen by the police, I hoped, I would be stripping, you know, these bits of old rotting posters, and which I would then pack up and take home and then make collages out of them, like Schwitters. Um, and then other things I began putting together. And I've been doing that ever since. And then I became much more, as it were, aware of being a maker of things. Um, I mean, I get rather impatient when people talk because I do a number of different things. They use this ghastly journalistic term. Sorry to interrupt you, but they call me a polymath. Well, I'm almost invariably called a polymath by people who are oligomaths. Um, and, <laughs> I mean, the fact is, I do a number of things, just as my father did, and I know that a lot of people, you know, Virginia Woolf's relatives, who are, they could do a number of things at the same time, but they would have been appalled, that my father would have been, to have been called polymaths. Or they Renaissance just, man. Or Renaissance man. I mean, that's such a vulgar piece of... Uh, vulgar journalism of the worst sort. I'm not a, I just do a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a butterfly. I move over this, I do that, and I find this little, and I can do this. And then there are certain things I can't do for the, to save my life, but I can do certain things and that's all. And I'm fascinated by abstract 
works um, which I make now, a lot of them, yeah. Thank you very much for being so eloquent and endlessly interesting. Well, thank you for being so patient. <laughs> and, um, thank you. <laughs> okay.